Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. This is by far my favorite time of year. Uh, I am a Yankee by birth, so I love the seasons. Uh, I am, was transplanted to Texas that has no seasons except summer, four degrees of summer. Um, but praise God when he brought us to North Carolina, just the seasons and the changes, and um, it's great. The cool air, uh, the change of colors, uh, not, not just the leaves changing colors, but the political signs going away, that change of color, that's, that's beautiful too, um, because our hope is not in the system, right? Our hope is in a God who puts his glory on display. And he does that through his handiwork, right? The firmament displays the, handy of, uh, the handiwork of God. And so uh, it's, just, it's just great. Um, I love this time of year. It's, it's like really throughout my life has just been one of the most favorite times for me. Um, but a few years ago, I came across a story of, of a little boy. Uh, I'm going to throw a picture up. My team's going to throw... Uh, I love this story. This is Tommy Lindsay. He lived up in Washington State, and this was back about 2013. I, I kept this story just because I, I loved it. Um, look at that big old leaf he's holding on to, you know? A um, little over two feet from the, the stem to the tip. And I, I just, I loved the article because when I first came across it, I'm reading the story, and Grandpa says something, and Mom says something, and his brother says something, and, you know... Um, and so they, they got thinking, hey, this could be a world record. And they're like, is there even such a thing as a world record leaf? To which there is, in case anyone wants to know. And, and uh, a family up in, in uh, Canada actually holds so Canada. Ooh, you won something. Um, <laughs> oh, no kidding, eh? Um, so to Mark and Beth, I apologize for my bad Canadian. Um, but... Uh, Yeah, so there really is such a thing, but I I look at stuff like that. I mean, this is just me, right? Even just the last couple of weeks sitting out in the backyard with my dog, and and, and she discovered piles of leaves this week, which was really kind of fun, and um, Leslie and I just adopted a new little pup, not new pup, five years old, but rehomed, saved from saving grace, and and so she's like romping in leaves. I I just love this, because I just sit and I just pick up a leaf and I look at it, and I go, this is the glory of God on display. It's just such a beautiful thing. As we've been working through this series, Chosen, what we see is God putting his glory on display over and over and over in an attempt and in the desire to draw people to himself. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And how does he do that? He puts his glory on display. Uh, Your life, I'll just tell you right now, this is uh, one more bonus feature for this morning. Your life is being put on display as the glory and splendor of God to other people. Do you know that? You are part of the redemption work of Jesus as he puts himself, his glory on display through you. Uh, But as we dive into this passage in Luke chapter 5, if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're going to read this passage uh, that we just saw depicted. Um, But up to this point in Luke, we're in Luke chapter 5, up to this point, really from Luke chapter 4 into chapter 5, we see a theme from the writer, Luke, uh, showing the authority of Jesus. Uh, And we see in Luke chapter 4 that uh, Jesus has authority in teaching. He's going into the synagogues, he's going into the temples, and with great authority he is teaching. 
and people are just being drawn to this man whose name is Jesus. Uh, also in, in Luke chapter 4, we see that Jesus has the authority to cast out demons, and we see this because He's casting out demons. And I love the fact that in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, the demons acknowledge the very title that Jesus attributes to Himself in Luke chapter 5, because one of the demons refers to Him as the Son of Man. So the demons are seeing something in Jesus that these religious guys in Luke chapter 5 don't even see yet. That's kind of puzzling, isn't it? Uh, but He also has the authority to heal all illness, because we see that at the close of chapter 4. He's, he's healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of diseases, uh, that He has the authority to command nature. We see that at the beginning of chapter 5, which we're actually going to look at in two weeks, so you can kind of get a jump start there. Uh, but Jesus has command and authority over all of nature. And so here, Luke is, is telling us again, here's one more thing that Jesus has authority. And, and he tells us here that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Now, who can forgive sin but God alone, right? Who can forgive except the one uh, to whom that sin was offensive? And that's God. So, uh, it, it's interesting that in this process, Luke is showing us that Jesus has all authority, and I just love it because I find it so interesting that in order to do this, or he, the way he chose uh, his divine right, to put this divine right on display, Jesus waited until there were some religious experts, some scripture experts, some religious leaders present to do this, to show that he indeed has authority to forgive sin. So, as we look at the glory of God on display, Luke chapter 5, let's just read the account that we just saw again. Beginning in verse 17, Luke chapter 5, it says, on one of those days, he, he was, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, I want to be a little bit careful because there's this religious system that's taken place and controlling much like what happens in, in life here today. But these guys were doing what the Old Testament law depicted. They just sort of pushed it to the extreme. Uh, when you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you discover that part of the role of these Pharisees and teachers was to protect from false teachers. And so, uh, it's just that they had gotten it all skewed. They, they blew the whole thing out of proportion, which is sometimes what we tend to do with church and life. So Jesus takes us back to this very intimate side. That's why this morning we're looking at the fact that we are chosen for intimacy with Jesus. Not religion, but intimacy. So, so he says in verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were asking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. That's a unique word. It's not like all of humankind. He's speaking very directly, very personally to this guy. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Now, son of man is a title, right? This is the same title the demons used at the close of chapter 4. This title, it's a messianic title of Jesus, the Messiah, actually comes from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Um, It's a name attributed to the Messiah. So you would even think these religious leaders who know all this Old Testament and they know of all the laws, they were so focused on the law that they missed the prophecy of the coming Messiah, the one that they were waiting for. And so Jesus is using this title. It's one of his favorite titles attributed to himself, actually used 25 times in the book of Luke. So he, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, the Messiah, right? Uh, Son of man is is an interesting because it's uh, coming from Daniel. It's referred to as the ancient of days, right? The son of of God, son of man. And so he's bringing together, this, this title brings together the idea that he is fully God, fully man. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union, in case anyone really wants to know that. The idea that it is in this man, in Jesus, he is fully God. There's not a part of him that is not God. Over here, he is fully man, and there's not a part of him that is not man. And we all go, huh? How, how did he do that? Or, or sometimes we just tend to think, well, Jesus was God, but he was like Superman. He was like, he had these super quality. No, he was fully God and fully man. And so that's why he attributes this to himself. He loves to use this of himself because he's saying, yes, I am the son of God. I am the son of man. That is my messianic title. And he's clearly identifying himself as God. So to the religious leaders that were there, there was no question in their mind that Jesus was claiming to be God. So when he makes this claim of forgiving sins, it comes from this standpoint, right, that he is God. So he says right? Um, So why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose. He rose up before them and picked up what, what he had been laying on, and he went home. Get this, glorifying God. Message perceived, message received, message responded to appropriately. Verse 26, and amazement seized them all. That's referring to everyone in earshot of Jesus. Now, I do believe this includes the Pharisees. It includes the scribes. It includes the teachers of the law who were there criticizing Jesus. I truly believe amazement came over them. Who could do such a thing? And amazement seized them all and they glorified, they glorified God. Message perceived, message received, message responded to appropriately. The glory of God on display, I see it, I'm responding appropriately, that is worship. And they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. When was the last time you were in the presence of Jesus and said, I'm in amazement, I have seen incredible things today because of the glory and splendor of Jesus. That's his desire for us. That's his desire for us. So most of the time when we, when we look at this, or you've probably heard preachers preach on this passage, they love to focus on the friends that bought, brought the guy that was paralyzed to Jesus. We're not going to talk about that today. But I will give you a bonus clip, okay? Uh, this is not part of our outline, but it, it's, a, it's a bonus for you this morning. No charge for this one. Just take this one home. Everybody needs friends like this guy. 
We all need friends like this guy. We need friends that are going to come and pick us up in our sorrow, in our despair, in our hurt, in our brokenness, and take us where? Take us to Jesus. Yeah, you need that person in your life that's, that, that is going to speak truth in your life. They're going to show up on your front door, not because you called and asked them, because they know there's a problem. They, they know there's something going on in your life, and they're going to show up in your life and say, come on, I'm taking you to Jesus. Jesus demonstrated for us the need that we all have to grow spiritually in multiple size groups. We all need different size groups to grow. We need that small, intimate, but we need this. We, we need to gather together as a body of believers. As you look around, you look in front of you, behind you, around you, there are people in this room you don't know. Is there anybody here that knows everybody in the room? I just, just a show of hands real quick. No, none, none of us do. You've heard me say before, no one has to know everybody, but everybody's got to know somebody, right? You need people who are going to jump into your life and point you to Jesus. So we need this kind of gathering to realize we're not alone. Uh, Jesus had big crowds, didn't he? We, we know about that. We, he had these big crowds. Jesus also had a very targeted 120 that were sitting up in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. He had 72 that he sent out. He had 12 very called disciples that he chose that they might be with him, that he might equip them, that he might demonstrate the glory of God to them so that he might send them out. Jesus had a unique three, Peter, James, and John, that he spent time with. Jesus had one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. His name was John. Because Jesus taught us that we need all size groups. We need various situations. So when people go, well, I can just, you know, kind of walk with Jesus on my own. I'm like, you can, but who's going to be there to pick you up when you fall? Who's going to help encourage you? Hebrews 3.13, so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He says we need people every day. So we need people in our life. We need the people like this guy had. They're going to point him to Jesus and bring him to the throne of grace. But this morning, I want to look at two things that I believe in this text show us that Jesus has chosen us for intimacy. He has chosen you very specifically for intimacy and relationship with him. We can come and we can gather. Bryce, team, thank you for leading us in worship. But worship begins, uh, I always say worship, Saturday morning worship begins with, or Sunday morning worship begins with Saturday night decisions, right? Uh, because we begin to put our heart and our framework to come and to gather with other believers and lift our voice and worship to the Lord. And it's a choice for you to be in this place and worship with others. No one can do that for you. That's a choice that you make on your own. And, and it's great to be able to do that together. And so as we gather we do that, and that's an awesome thing. But beyond all that, even in that moment of worship, Jesus wants to meet with you personally and intimately. Because the people around you can't worship for you. That's an attitude of your heart with Christ. So there's two things in this text that I see that, that tells me that we are chosen for intimacy. The first thing I want you to see in this text is that Jesus knows your real needs. Jesus knows your real needs. When we, uh, the focus of this passage is, is Jesus, of course, but, but the character that's introduced to us is this paralyzed man. And, and these friends bring him to Jesus because they truly believe that Jesus can heal their friend. And so uh, they knew his life. They, they knew what was going on with him. They knew his struggles. Uh, they wanted him to be healed, and they believed that Jesus could do that. 
Last week, as we wrapped up our time, we had some incredible time of prayer in this room and all through the week, just as we gathered and people were bringing needs of healing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and God knows those real needs. And when these guys brought their, their friend to Jesus, they did so because he had very real physical needs that they were aware of, but he had other needs that they weren't really aware of. They weren't sensitive to that Jesus knew because Jesus looked beyond the physical needs to this man's real need. And that was forgiveness. That was salvation. That was spiritual healing that goes beyond the physical healing. Now, Jesus wasn't denying that this guy needed physical healing, but he also realized that what he really needed was spiritual healing. Some of you this morning are are coming in this place and you're carrying a weight, you're carrying baggage. It may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be relational, it may be financial, but I'm telling you what, you're carrying spiritual baggage that you're probably not even aware of. And I want you to know Jesus knows those real needs in your life this morning. He knows the real stuff that's happening with you. He knows the stuff that you know about, but he knows about things that you aren't even aware of. And Jesus is working to meet those needs. I think sometimes we treat Jesus like a a spiritual vending machine. We, We approach God and we know this God exists and we approach him and, and we deposit a few prayers, we press a couple buttons, pull a couple of knobs, and our expectation is that God is gonna dispense everything that I want and everything that in my life I think I need. I'm guilty. You probably are too. We've all been in that situation. Oh God, I want this. God, I need this. God, God, I really need this new car. God, I really want this. And you know, and and, and we have these ideas, and God's going, Dave, I know your real needs. And we walk in that journey, and, and, and it's sort of that Americanized version of Christianity, right? We sort of buy into this idea that, well, God loves me, so of course he wants me healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? He wants me to prosper. Uh, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. Of course he wants me to win the lottery. And, you know, I mean, it's like all these things that, that we sort of Americanize this version of God to be this big cosmic deity vending machine that we go to. But that's not who Jesus is. Several years ago, I was working in my, my yard and trimming out some stuff, and, and this was back, we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas before moving to the, to the God-blessed state of North Carolina. Um, and uh, I, I drug a bunch of stuff out to the street, and I, I had this moment, because as I was taking all these branches that I'd trimmed and stuff out to the curb for curbside pickup, and, and I think about this, it's probably been 12 years. Every time I, I drive and I see limbs that are cut and stacked and, and, and I, I say there's something about this branch that's true of itself that it doesn't know. And that is that it's dead. I, I stacked all these, these limbs and all this stuff and it was a giant stack and it was green. It looked like it was growing there. But in my head I thought, that's dead. There's no life left in that. This branch, I actually cut from out back this morning. Um, No extra charge for the maintenance on the property. Um, But this is dead. I mean, it has color. 
It looks alive. And, and, and I started thinking, how much is my life like this branch? I, I, look, I look at my life, and, and even though I may be cut off and dead or separated from God, or I'm, I'm, focusing on, I'm focusing on what I want God to do with me, to adorn me, to make me look better or live better. And so I'm thinking, well, God, if you'd, you know, splash a little green of, of wealth or if you would do this or do that. And, and in my head, and I see it, and I hope you do too now, every time you drive around town and, and see a branch laying on the side of the curb, it goes, it looks good, but it's dead. It's dead. It's not coming back. I mean, we could go get spray paint and paint it and try to make it look better. But the truth of the matter is that branch is dead. And, and it doesn't need to be adorned differently. It, it needs new life. And Jesus looked at this man and he said, I understand that you have physical external needs and physically you are paralyzed. But Jesus looked at this man just like he looks at me, just like he looks at you. And he goes, you're also spiritually paralyzed. You're living in spiritual paralysis. And some of you this morning, even being here, it's like, I'm doing my stuff. I'm doing my duty. I'm doing my Christian thing. I'm going to church. You may be sitting here spiritually paralyzed and you have needs that you aren't even aware of. But God knows. Because he knows your real needs. We have this idea that somehow walking with Jesus, he's just going to make everything so wonderful and so rosy. And he's going to care for us in abundance. And yes, he promises he will meet our needs. There's not a need in your life that God's not aware of, and he's going to meet those needs. But I want you to hear what, what he says in Luke chapter 9, if we just slid forward. He said, and I say to you all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Doesn't, that doesn't sound like health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus is saying, no, look, if you're going to follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And whoever is ashamed of me of, and of my words uh, of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father uh, and of the holy angels? That's a different idea that Jesus is conveying to his followers. He's not simply trying to adorn the outside. He's simply saying, look, if you're going to walk with me, it's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be the way that you want. Take up your cross daily and follow me. No glamour, no glitz, because it's not about us. It's about him, right? It's not about my glory. It's about the glory of Jesus. I am simply to adorn his glory and point people to him. So I don't fault these friends at all for doing everything that they could to get this man to Jesus. I commend them for doing that. Because they, they, they didn't understand the man's real needs. They understood in the context of what they knew, they did everything they could to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. They weren't saying, hey man, come to church with me because you, know, you need to hear the gospel and get saved. No, they, they just took him to Jesus. They understood the need and they, they took him to Jesus. They didn't take him to church. They didn't take him to the synagogue. They didn't take him to a healing pool. They brought him to the person of Jesus Christ. And so I commend these guys for that. What they didn't realize is that the entire time Jesus had a greater concern uh, for their friend than they had for him, but it was a different kind of concern because Jesus knew his real needs. Listen to me, Jesus has greater concern for you than you do for yourself. Jesus was fully aware of his physical paralysis 
but Jesus knew his real need was spiritual. So Jesus spoke two things to this man. There's two things in the text that we see spoken to this man. Three gospel accounts give us this account of Jesus healing this man. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here, Luke 5, Jesus speaks two things to this man. The first one we see in Matthew or in Luke chapter 5. Now, I love this because when Jesus speaks these, these two things, they're completely out of order to everybody else. <laughs> to everybody else, these things are completely out of order except to Jesus. Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, right? So what does he do? Luke chapter 5, verse 20, and when he, that's Jesus, saw their faith, he said, man, your sins, speaking very specifically, man, your sins are forgiven you. What we don't have recorded anywhere in the gospels is somebody yelling, that's not why he's here. That's not why I'm here. Come on, man, that's not why we ripped away the tile. The, the Greek word that they use for tile here is the word we get ceramic. And so it's like they, they ripped this stuff apart. You didn't hear the guys up there going, dude, that's not why we lowered him in there. The guy wasn't going, hey, that's all good and fine, but I still can't walk. See, Jesus does stuff in a different way than we do. He deals with what is primary first. He's going to deal with your life in a way that is unexpected to you. He's not going to deal with your concerns in your order. Although he is concerned and he desires that you bring them to him, let your petitions be made known unto God. Because he knows your real needs. Bring them to God. He, he knows what your real needs are. Bring them to him. But then the second thing he says, now he's getting to the issue that these people have. At verse 24, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Out of order, but he deals with both concerns because Jesus is intricately concerned with this man's life. God is concerned with the situations of your life. His promise is that he's going to meet your needs, but sometimes he's going to meet your needs, not in the ways that you want, but in the way that he wants to. But we still let him know. We bring those to him. The, the trouble most often is that we want what we want when we want it. That's the culture we live in. God, I want this, and, and well, you know what? I want it right now, doggone it. I want patience, and I want it right now. <laughs> you ever do that with God? It's like, come on, pray for patience. What happens? You, you end up like it, it's some light, and it's broken, and you're there half the morning, and you're getting to work late, and then you're behind a train. It's 3,000 cars long, and you're there three hours. And yeah, I mean, it's like it's stuff that God is just, he knows our needs, and he's going to give us what he wants for us. He's going to meet our needs, but he's going to do it in a way that meets his agenda right? But, but listen, the reality is we go through seasons of life, and I don't know if you have, but I have, Leslie and I have. We've gone through seasons of life praying for God to do something, and it is sincere as all get out, and we believe God's leading in a certain way to do something. Anybody been there? You've prayed, and you've sought after the heart of God. You've sought after the face of God. You've petitioned God for not just, not just minutes, not just hours. I'm talking days, weeks, months, maybe even years. You're petitioning. You're going to God, and God doesn't give you what you want. Anybody? 
Those are hard seasons. Those are hard seasons. Have you ever had one of those seasons where you prayed and said, God, I, I understand this is your purpose. I have such a peace that this is your calling uh, on my life and I, I'm coming to you and, and man, God, and then it doesn't happen. But then later you realize how good God was that he didn't give you what you wanted all along. Have you ever had one of those moments? Where, where literally you look back and go, God, thank you for saving me from what I thought I wanted. God, that thing I thought I could not live without, and you have something so much more, so much better. Why? Because sometimes God is meeting our needs in ways that we don't even know. Lesson I could go back to periods in our life and in our ministry, and what we realize is that God was meeting our needs before we even knew we had a need. You know, we look back on stuff and it's like, man, God was meeting a need that we didn't even know we had. Why? Because we're drawing close to him, intimacy with him. He's chosen us for intimacy. See, this, this makes Psalm 37, 4 absolutely come alive to me because it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we wrongly look at that passage and think, oh man, if I'm just happy in God, he's going to give me all the stuff I want. And then you get mad at God, you get frustrated with God because he's not giving you all the stuff you want. Listen, I've been a dad of small children in Walmart. I understand what it is to want everything shiny on the shelf. Listen, there's a reason these marketing people put all the fun stuff and the colorful stuff down low on the shelf. You know that? Walk through Harris Teeter, walk through uh, Food Line. Where's all the sugary candy? It's all down here. That's why Leslie goes, babe, look up here. Because <laughs> I'm like, mmm, Cocoa Puffs, you know? I mean, um, like children, we think, oh, if I'm just happy in God, God's going to give me everything I want. This verse becomes a reality when we understand when I am delighting in God, I am intimate with God, I'm drawing close to God in intimate relationship with Him, now I start to understand His heart becomes my heart. The things I desire are the things He desires for me. Why? Because He knows my real needs. So listen, no program, no, no program inside a church, outside a church, no policy, no political party, no person can accomplish what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do in the human heart when we draw close and intimate with Jesus. God will do a work that we can't even imagine. My friend Kenny Luck, pastor out in California, once said, he said, my worldly comforts are negotiable to God for the sake of closeness to God and Christ-likeness. One purpose is trumped by the other. I love that. Because God's primary concern is Christ-likeness, to be more like Jesus. There's a second thing I want you to see in this text, though, and that is that not only does Jesus know your real needs, Jesus knows your real thoughts. Jesus knows your real thoughts. That includes your motives, that includes your ideas, your, your thoughts, your directions. Sometimes we do the right thing for all the wrong reasons, thinking somehow we're pleasing Jesus. Jesus knows. 
We stand here and we worship together and, and, and we move our mouth and we say words, but God knows the desires of our heart. He knows the intent. He knows what we're thinking in that moment. Because God knows. Look what he says as we move through in Luke chapter 5, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Right? They clearly understood the Son of Man. He's speaking blasphemies. They say he's speaking blaspheme because he's claiming to be God. When people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God, sure he did. Okay? Very clear. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. You know where intimacy with Jesus begins? In your thoughts in your heart, in those private moments. I've said we need all size groups to grow, but the greatest growth that you will experience is in that private moment between you and Jesus all alone. When you abandon your heart to him, when you abandon your mind to him, you see, we're not gonna fool God, but in the most intimate, most private moments, your time alone with Jesus, pick up his word, sit down with him in the quiet, just spend time with him. Expose your heart to him because he already knows your heart. Expose your thoughts to him because he already knows your thoughts. When you come to him, it's okay to come to him and say, God, I'm kind of becoming a little begrudging to you this morning. I'm not even sure if you're still here but I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask you to reveal your heart to me. See, he knows your thoughts. He, he knows your real thoughts. And he wants to meet you in that moment. He wants to bring glory to himself. He wants to reveal himself to you. When Jesus invites you to come and have a relationship, he wants it to be personal. He wants it to be private. And our relationship with it begins in that most personal setting. There is nothing that we hide from God. When we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change, what do we mean? We mean we're connecting. Connecting means commit to relationship. You are in relationship with Jesus. Sit with him in that moment. Let him speak to you through the presence of his Holy Spirit, through the truth of his word. Let, let him meet you in that private moment, that moment that's between you and Jesus, what's in your head to the person of God. That's intimacy because he knows you completely. You are fully known and fully loved by God. That's intimacy. What's amazing to me as we grow in this kind of relationship with the Lord, I mean, it's powerful. It's intimate. It's, it's literally life-changing. So I want to read a passage for you because the psalmist got this. The psalmist, just, just listen to me. I'm not going to put it on the screen because I want you to listen. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or just make a note. Go back and read this from Psalm 139. David, the psalmist, listen to what he says. Listen to the words that speak of intimacy. Listen to the words that speak of relationship. Listen to the words that speak of being known by God. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. That's how we knew that David was from the south. 
Some of you will get that later. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light uh, about me be, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Listen, folks, that is a God who knows you. He knows your needs. He knows your thoughts. And Jesus wants to meet with you in your personal moments. His invitation is to be in a relationship with him, to be in intimate relationship. God has chosen you for intimacy. See, to enjoy God fully, we realize that he knows our real needs and that he knows our real thoughts. And he still loves us. He knows us completely in all of our sin, and yet he loves us and he desires intimacy with us. Because he knows us, fully known, fully loved, he has a plan that is far greater than anything we could devise for ourselves. So Luke concludes this storyline with this summary statement describing the response of the people, including the scribes and Pharisees who were theological experts and religious authorities, and they were all ecstatic and gave glory to God, which, you know what, is exactly what Jesus wanted. He put His glory on display. The people perceived it, they received it, they responded appropriately. What about you? What about you? Will you acknowledge and respond? to that invitation to intimacy with him. Here's what I want you to do, just in an attitude of prayer. I'm going to ask you to just take all your stuff that's sitting in your lap right now and just close it up and set it aside. Set it next to you, set it on the floor beneath you. And for just a moment, as we close our time, as the team is coming to, to lead us, if you want to bow in an attitude of prayer, you can certainly do that. If you want to just gaze somewhere, just remember Jesus knows your thoughts, okay? Don't leave the room mentally just yet because God wants to do something with you. But in an attitude of prayer, as I was 
pressing into this text over the last couple of weeks, I came across just a great thought from a commentator, a guy that I love and I read often, and he summarized this this way, and I just want to read it to you, and I want you to listen. So either looking or looking around or head bowed, eyes closed, whatever you want to do in this moment, I just want you to listen. He said, when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, people had the opportunity to see God as he is. As they observed Jesus' character, they saw the heart of God. As they witnessed Jesus' miracles, they saw the power of God. As they listened to Jesus' words, they saw the impact of God on the lives of those who responded in faith. And on this particular day, when the people gathered to see the ministry of Jesus in action, they soon discovered their vision of God was way too small. It was much too limited. The Messiah's miracles of healing represented only one dimension of his ministry. He came not only to heal maladies of the body, he brought cleansing from the deadly spiritual disease of sin. I just tell you this morning, God knows you. He knows your real needs. He knows your real thoughts. He's chosen you for intimacy and he wants to bring you to himself. He wants you to heal you of spiritual disease. He wants you to grow an intimate relationship with him. Are you willing to let him do that? In just a moment, the team's gonna close us and, and lead us out. And as we do, this is just the invitation as we sing and as we look at these words to run to the Father to fall into grace. I, I, I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. Father, as we run to you right now, would you receive us? You will because you're a faithful God. You are true to your word. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning during this time, this is a time of response. If, if you want to remain seated and just spend a moment with the Lord, please feel free to do that. If you want to come down to the front to this altar area and just kneel before the Lord and, and petition Him and just spend a moment in, in relationship with Him, I encourage you to do that. I'm going to be off to your left. If you want to come and talk and pray, I'm willing to, to just talk with you. Maybe there's something you just need to bring and, and you have someone just carry that with you. I'd love to do that. There's others in the room that will do that as well. But during this time, would you just do business with the Lord in a way that he's inviting you? Jesus, would you meet us in this moment? Because you will. You're faithful to your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.